1: Hello and welcome to TFM's local watering hole, and I am just one of the hosts here, Matthew Rushing, and I'm so excited to have back the wonderful, the brilliant, and how many languages do you speak, Christy Morris? Dos. (laughs) Ah, excellent, excellent. Well, even I understood that. Uh, So, (laughs) we are going back in time. We're going to have a blast tonight, I think, talking about a film from 2002. The born identity, but before we dig into that, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Of course, if you're listening, uh, please just hit subscribe wherever that is, and so you can get all of our episodes as soon as they release. Uh, you can also uh, interact with us and follow us on places uh, socially. Uh, we've got Instagram at the Six Hundred Two Club TFM. Of course, you can also find us on X, Twitter, whatever they call it these days, at the Six Hundred Two Club. The entire network can be found over on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. You can also join our listeners only discussion group on Facebook called the Babel Conference. And you can find that by typing Babel Conference into the search field on Facebook. You can also find us online at trek.fm as well as support us over on Patreon at patreon.com slash trek.fm. Uh, If you like what we do and you want to make sure that it keeps coming to you, that's the best way to make sure that happens over at patreon.com slash track FM. And last but not least, if you do like the show, help support the show with a uh, digital word of mouth, personal word of mouth. Uh, and also of course, uh, reviews and star ratings on any of the platforms like Apple podcasts or Spotify. All of those are great ways to make sure that this podcast keeps intriguing new listeners. Uh, now, Christy, this is this is really interesting because, of course, uh, the the born identity uh, starts its life as a novel, a novel series by Robert Ludlam. And so this is one of those that goes from page to screen. And so first, I'm really interested to know from you if you had ever read the novel before coming into the film. And if so,
2: you know what you had thought of it. Well, unfortunately it's going to be a short answer. No. <laughs> unfortunately, I haven't. And the sad thing is too, I bought the books and they are somewhere in my house and I just never actually read them.
1: <laughs> I love that. No, I totally understand. It's it's um So, I have read the books, okay. um but I believe that I actually read them after I had seen the films. Uh, and so, and, and if anybody has read the books, you do know that the books are quite different. Um, and what's really interesting is that, you know, coming to this, this adaptation, uh, you have the director who is actually a fan of the source material, Uh, But then you have uh, the writer of the film, Tony Gilroy, who people will know from things like Andor and, of course, uh, Rogue One and many other great adaptations. He was not a fan of the source material and kind of felt like it wasn't a great thing to try and adapt. And so um, I, I find most interesting, in all honesty, is that this is one of those things that takes very few pieces of information from its original source uh, and just utilizes some some basic stuff. And the biggest thing was is that you've got a guy who finds that he only knows how to do one thing, which is kill people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's pretty much what they use as the basis for this. And so – um which is, I, I think, you know, really smart because having read the books, they're very much kind of drenched in the '80s and an '80s sensibility, and they're a lot more complicated. There's so much more going on, and so in many ways, I feel like this storyline, by being stripped down to the very basis and creating something that they were hoping for, would would feel more modern. Um, I, I think uh, this, you know, really works. Um, I was also really surprised to find out, and this is not something I knew, but that Ludlam, the writer, actually befriended uh, Doug Lyman who uh, actually has visited his home repeatedly to consult with him on these things. And he he actually really likes um, the uh, the adaptation. Mm. Um, So I thought that that was really interesting, because in in, again, in all honesty, this is really different than what, you know, Ludlum put on the page.
2: And that's good to hear the differences coming from someone that has read the books with you. And then to me, that hasn't gotten around to it, but had also bought the books because I liked the movies so much. So, um, you know, at at very least we can hope that that's kind of the way it went for a lot of people where if they hadn't already read the books, the movies got them to go and buy them. Um, So, Hey, that's awesome for (laughs) Ludlam.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, And I I think that it's one of those places where, you know the the medium of of a book and a novel is quite different in many ways from from what you can put on screen right and a story can be much more complicated uh, in a novel uh, than it can be on screen most of the time um i mean i think these days the places where you get the most complicated type of storytelling tends to be in, you know, short series uh, now, you know, like on something like an HBO where you can really dig into that type of thing. But, you know, a, a movie that's just at two hours, it's, it's very difficult to do that. So, you know, when you take something from the page and you put it on screen, making those uh, judicious cuts um, and even changing from the source material can be the best way to go Mm -hmm. um and you know again too i mean this is something to which i think to to bring it up to a more modern level and not have it kind of so bogged down in many of the things from the 80s that a, a lot of people in the early 2000s might not have been as familiar with anymore as well especially younger audience members when it comes to the iran contra affair uh you know something like uh Vietnam, all of these type of things to which, you know, are starting to move out of the cultural zeitgeist. Um and to to give this a more modern spin, I think, you know, of course really ended up working. And so mm-hmm. um yeah, it's it's always interesting when you get a book uh and you turn it into a movie, you know, and I also think too it's a little bit easier with this um because I don't think that that's it's like a novel series that was you know beloved by just an incredible amount of people. It it, it 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 you know I mean there's a big difference between doing something like this and say Harry Potter, right? Right. Where, everybody's read, you know, at the time Harry Potter, especially when they're at uh, doing the adaptations. Um this is different. Mm-hmm. So, um
2: well, and if I could add, too, I think that here, the um, director, Doug Lyman, really noticed that this could be great, that it had good bones. And mm-hmm. if it was yeah. pared down to the core point of the story, and that's a character study, that it could mm-hmm. really translate easier to screen. Um And you and I have talked about that before, that, you know, some of the best movies ever are really bare bones and you're just focusing on one or two key plot points or characters and you're Mm -hmm. just sucked in. And so you're realizing as an audience that you're following along, particularly these two people for most of the story, that other people may come and go, but this is the central theme And so you're eating out of the palm of their hand, waiting to see what's going to happen next to Jason Bourne.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, No, I I, I couldn't agree with that more. But I think it's also interesting how much, you know, this type of adaptation ends up owing to uh, the, the James Bond series in the sense that, you know, most of the James Bond movies only take bits and pieces from the actual novels. And then, of course, their titles... And then make up their own story, mm-hmm. you know, and so I think in, in a lot of ways, it's interesting because they were a good template of kind of how to do this, right, um, and uh, and utilize just bits of information, and then kind of crafting your own thing, which, you know, is, is very interesting because I think by this point, you know, we talked about this movie coming out in 2002, and that In a lot of ways, I think there's a new identity that is coming into film. I mean, the world is changing. Uh, James Bond had changed at this point. You know, uh, Goldeneye had come out, Tomorrow Never Dies, and then the latest Bond movie would have been The World is Not Enough. Um, But what's interesting here is that Born as a series, and and Born as this first movie, it's really going to change everything. So – you know, normally we kind of put this at the beginning, but I'm I'm really interested to hear about, you know, your first experience with seeing this movie and what, you know, that first viewing did to you as a, you know, I know you grew up watching a bunch of action films with your dad and stuff. So, you know, how did this sit with you as, y- you know, you, you came out of the theater that first time?
2: Well, I know for sure I saw this in the theater and I actually was 15 when this came out. And it was at a time when, you know, obviously a lot's changing in my life um, and I'm young and impressionable and um, had a lot of experience, especially with action, but with the Bond franchise as well. And I think the thing that really blew me away about the Bourne movies and especially with this first one was. For one, it was not like Bond in the sense that it doesn't really focus at all on a love interest. It does a little bit here and there with um, Franca, but the main point is just about Bourne himself and how he has amnesia and he's trying to figure out who he is. And I like that it was so much more of a focus on him as a person and not on trying to be sexy Or be in like the spy genre as much as just to be its own thing. And that the action was so upfront and in your face. The perspective for all of the action scenes was like you as an audience member are in the middle of the fight yourself. And that was something I hadn't seen before. So I I remember just being blown away and thinking I cannot wait to see more. Because of this one.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was looking at some of the action movies that had come out around this. And, you know, I I think, you know, action movies seem to have gone one of two ways. They had kind of become, I think, campy and silly, like the Charlie's Angels franchise. Or it had become, you know, I I guess even at this point, too, you know, the James Bond movies are, are becoming... A little bit more outlandish you know the world is not enough is definitely that way um mm. you know feeling more roger Moore like than they they did especially when you think of uh, golden eye was such a a nice mixture, right, of, of a lot of different types of, of Bond elements, um, you know, whether it was Sean Connery, Roger Moore, or, a, you know, a little bit of the Timothy Dalton era, all kind of rolled into one package. But I I do, I mean, I remember seeing The Born Identity, and it kind of just rocking my world in the sense of what an action movie could be like, you know, you mentioned some of the things, but... Like you said, the fight sequences, the way the cart chase was done in this film. I mean, it's it's amazing because going back to watch this, I'm reminded of just how influential this movie was because in all honesty, action movies change forever after this. Mm-hmm. You know, James Bond, um, uh, the, the year after this um, will be, you know, die another day and then James Bond will change forever when, you know, you get uh, Casino Royale, mm-hmm. which is much more in the vein of the the, the Bourne franchise. You're going to get the reintroduction of, um, you know, the Mission Impossible franchise, which is going to feel much more like this, you know, very grounded, very gritty, very real. Um, and even today, so many of our action movies still kind of have – those ingredients that this movie gave us, right. And, and what it meant to make an action movie. I mean, I, I think, you know, many ways born is the very first modern action film. um, Mm. Really. Um, And, and, and what, you know, we think of as action movies in the two thousands. And it, it's, it's fascinating again, to go back and watch this original and see just how much, that was the case. Uh, and, and, and in all honesty, you know, and, and of course, tongue in cheek wise, but th- this did create a new identity for action movies. Nice. Um, you know, um, and you, you talked about, you know, again, you know, you think about those those fight sequences and, and gosh, um, you know, fight sequences became about, um, you know, what thing could a person pick up, you know, just an everyday object to to be then uh you know a weapon Mm -hmm. you know in the in this movie the pen is mightier right than the sword um and exactly exactly you know and so i mean but that those are the types of things to which this series introduced into the world of action films and that forever changed the landscape Mm -hmm. And so I I just think that that's just a really interesting thing as I was re-watching this movie and seeing how, again, bits and pieces of what it does is in the ingredient to just about every other type of action movie that comes out these days.
2: Well, and I think a big part of that, too, is owed to the fact that Lyman, his really only big name film and i wouldn't say it was that big of a name before doing this film was swingers which i find to be so funny very different type of movie um and so he definitely was characterized as more of like an indie filmmaker and even shot a lot of the scenes himself because he felt like the perspective just Mm -hmm. wasn't right if he wasn't doing it and this is so me by the way if i ever became a director cannot know how to delegate um (laughs) and so i think too it's funny that then if you see in the future he directs mr and mrs smith which also has some really Mm -hmm. gritty action where angelina jolie hits someone in the face with a telephone Right. Yeah. (laughs) Like, I mean, picks up one of those old rotary phones and smacks Adam Brody in the face with it. So, yeah, clearly he uh, Lyman also kind of favors that idea that you mentioned of like everyday objects that could be repurposed into a weapon. Yeah,
1: 100 percent. I mean, it it's uh, it's just. It's astounding. Again, you you have these moments in film history where things change, right? You know, Mm -hmm. uh, Star Wars forever changed what it means to be a blockbuster. Um, You know, you have Terminator 2 forever changed what it means to be an action movie, a a, a blockbuster. Uh, I think this movie forever changes what it meant to be uh, an action movie, you know. And I think part of that is really interesting because uh, when you're finding Bourne's identity in the casting here, you know, the the people that they had as a range of actors, Brad Pitt, uh, Russell Crowe, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Tom Cruise, Sylvester Stallone, um, and all of these are names that are in the hopper. And there are a few of those to where I can kind of see this working, I guess, and some that I can't at all. But I mean, like I because I, I think of Tom Cruise, you know, and what we see him do, especially in the later Mission Impossible movies. And I think, OK, maybe that could work. Or mm-hmm. in, in all honesty to Russell Crowe at this time, I could see him working. Be, um, but, you know, I, Brad Pitt, too, too pretty. You know, um, Russ Arnold Schwarzenegger or Sylvester Sloan, you know, no, I just don't see that working at all. And. I think I'm incredibly thankful that they ended up with Matt Damon because there's something about him as this character. He's so unassuming and so kind of like normal looking and almost boring looking that really, I think, is the thing that makes this character, you know? Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I think here you needed somebody that was a little bit of a lesser known than some of those other actors at the time, you know, Damon was still pretty young. He had done like goodwill hunting um, and talented Mr. Ripley by this point, but not experienced to the level of like Stallone. Um, And so you needed somebody like that, that could really become the character of Bourne. And although later we see, you know, what Pitt can do as, like, in Mr. and Mrs. Smith and um, Bullet Train and stuff like that. Um, At the time, I don't think he would have been the right fit. And so I think that you're right that Damon is unassuming. He's capable of coming in and really becoming this character and also not looking like the traditional CIA agent Mm -hmm. that you might expect. It's not like he's, you know, in super top shape like an august walker you know um mission impossible character um and doesn't look like he even knows where he is most of the time much less you know being ready for a fight because he has amnesia so yeah i think he Mm -hmm. does such a great job at playing this out as a guy who is just trying to figure out who he is and also survive
1: yeah, I mean, so I, I think you had hit on something earlier that just really struck me, and I thought it was so incredibly astute is the fact that the, the Matt Damon is the is the person, I think, that can bring this character to life, like the inner person, you know, and play this in a way that you really do kind of find believable. And again, I think it's just because, you know, he has this ability to to be this kind of every guy. This, you know, Mm -hmm. like this every man that in a way that I don't think any of the other people on this list would have been able to do to be, again, very unassuming and um, to play uh, just a person truly struggling with who they are. And I think the beauty of that is, you know, you'd already seen him be able to play this type of character in Goodwill Hunting, Mm -hmm. right? Struggling with his identity. Um, you know, I think talented Mr. Ripley is a, is another role where he's able to do that. And here he just brings that, that person and the struggle and, um, the, the frustration, uh, and, and yet at the same time, his ability to then all of a sudden just flip a switch, you know, and have the actions come out of him. And I think it's, again, it's more surprising, coming from matt damon than it would be say tom cruise or you know russell crowe or brad pitt where all of a sudden this dude who just looks like a nobody starts beating the crud out of everyone
0: mm-hmm.
1: um and is better at everyone than uh, at hand-to-hand combat and all that kind of stuff i mean uh, matt damon got in an incredible shape for this film but again because he's he's young, really fit and everything, he he doesn't look like, again, like a Sylvester Stallone or Schwarzenegger where they're just buffed out to the max, you right. know? He just looks like kind of a normal dude, you know? And then all of a sudden, and especially when you put him in all the baggy clothes he's wearing for most of the movie, like, you can't tell that this guy is ripped, mm-hmm. you know? And so I, I just – everything about the choice of, of Matt Damon, I think, in, in the role – Is actually what makes this movie. Because I don't. I don't know. I mean even as I mentioned earlier. Like a Tom Cruise or a Russell Crowe. I don't know. Maybe Crowe is the closest you could get to this. Because he can kind of. Find a way to. Melt into the roles. That he Mm -hmm. has. But I don't know if anybody. Could have done this as well. as, As Damon ends up. You know performing here.
2: Yeah, I have to agree with you because even just the reason that the others, although I think that Crow would be the closest, that the others you could kind of see too much of themselves in it and not being able to melt into it and really let the character show off. And I like that especially Mm -hmm. you can see that in the fight scenes where, you know, when he starts to do certain moves, it's like he himself is even surprised that he knows how to do that. And that is great acting. I mean, talk about becoming a character. He starts doing, you know, like karate chops and looking surprised at himself <laughs> Um, or speaking another language and realizing that he knows French, you know, um, was great. And I couldn't see, you know, somebody like Stallone being able to do that the same way.
1: Oh, my gosh. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I think it, it's it's one of those things where um, and, and I, I do think like Tom Cruise will be with the Ethan Hunt role. Mm-hmm. You know, this this role was just kind of made for Matt Damon. And I, I'm glad that they chose him. And I think he does everything that they need him to do in a way that makes him indelible as this character and you know when they tried to you know put uh jeremy renner in in a you know spin-off sequel uh it just it just doesn't quite work right there's something about this character that became matt damon and mm-hmm. so and i think the the romantic identity a part of this is, is something that you mentioned earlier where they don't really you know i think shoehorn in romance but i do think that franca potent uh playing marie is it's one one of those things is that you she's not well known to a lot of people i think at this point um so i think that really helps um so you don't come in with any kind of identity for this character um and yet the beauty of the writing for her as a character is that she's a compliment to born because they both kind of lack any identity in this movie. And yet they find their identities through their relationship with one another. So that by the time you get to the end of the movie, um, their relationship has actually helped them become the version of themselves that they do want to be Mm -hmm. um which i I, you know i think is incredibly beautiful about this movie and i think that's one of the things that really makes it work and she is just you know being german herself having the accent everything about her i think uh, is honestly perfect in this movie like I was really struck by just how good her performance is and how well she matches up with Matt Damon. And they and they complement each other so well with what they're doing on screen.
2: Yeah, their chemistry is really great and I like that she's not included in the movie to take us off in another direction and make this suddenly be about being sexy or a romance or anything like that. It's all about survival and about how her character was also kind of rootless and lost and looking for identity. And they find each other along the way and like you said, like become... Something different because of each other, and have suddenly a different outlook on life because they've found someone to share it with, even um and so it's more just about that base human need of having a companion. Not even always romantically, but just, you know, I love that scene of them in the car when he first gets her to drive him to Paris. And he says, no, I love that you're talking. I haven't talked to someone in forever. So I was just feeling really like comfortable in your presence and would love if you would keep talking. And she's going, oh, okay," (laughs) And so like there was no romance to that at all. But it was just nice that he found comfort in that.
1: Well, I was thinking, of when, as you said that, the part, too, where she's like, don't forget me. He's like, how, how could I forget you? You're the only person I right. know. <laughs> and, and, and so, again, like you said, there's no romance to that. It's just this, the reality of the situation. And I think one of the beauties is the way in which I, I think the romance feels so organic Because, again, the way that they've crafted the movie and the way that the characters are being portrayed by both of the actors here is so complimentary. It's no wonder that these two people who feel completely lost in life, they feel like people who have no idea who they are, they're helping one another to find out who they are Mm -hmm. and who they want to be, right? Um, And the things that are going to be important to them. And so I I think that there's just something. I mean, this is the place where I think, you know, Tony Gilroy and his writing and everything really come through. Um, But then that has to be translated on screen through the actors. Right. And I think that, you know, when I, you know, the background of this film and you read about it and, and it's a slog for them to get this made. It's there's a lot of difficulty that happens in this. But it's Lyman and Matt Damon who really believe in this character and they really believe in the story and they continually are fighting for making sure that all of the character moments are here, even if they're a little bit slower, because they inform who these characters are. And I think it really comes out in the movie as you're watching it so that. Everything that then is being done in those softer scenes is shining through mm-hmm. and it help it helps you to accept when you get to the end of the film and they're together. Right. Mm-hmm. Like you you have gotten to the place where you want that to happen because of the portrayal of the characters. Um, and like you mentioned, the chemistry that they have on screen. Mm-hmm. And so it it's one of the important parts where if you do it right, you don't have to force it because the actors are going to make you believe. exactly, And they're going to have you rooting for the characters, you mm-hmm. know, and that's that's what happens here.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. I think that if you didn't have these two actors together to make the characters come to life, that it doesn't work the way that it should. And that Franca in particular really brings that softness that you mentioned of being sort of a representation of us as the audience to be along for the ride and asking questions and not always getting an answer, but seeing the values that Jason upholds, like protecting children and um, being willing to put his life on the line before everyone else Um, And to even send her away and give her all the money he has to keep her and her friend and his children safe. So it's like those are inherent things Mm -hmm. that people that make people who they are, that she learned about him and realized that she cared for him. So, you know, and then same thing with her, you know, the fact that she showed loyalty to him even when she didn't have to. Um, And... And did also hold him accountable for things, you know, asked him why he did something or, you know, was terrified when she found out he was actually an assassin. Um, She just plays those scenes so well, even with just her expression, much less her dialogue or, you know, I'm glad that you mentioned as well with her German accent and everything, you know, actually saying some German curse words in the movie, (laughs) Shiza, was funny.
1: Yeah, you know, you mentioned something there that I didn't even put on the outline, but it really struck me. Um, The the whole idea of this psychological identity of the character born and how, you know, we learned throughout the movie that he's a part of this uh, Treadstone project where basically they've been programmed, Mm -hmm. uh, reprogrammed as as human beings to be these perfect agents. And what I find fascinating about the movie then is we see – his baseline instinct that's come out, it, it's almost as if his brain has been reset, right? Because what happened? Mm-hmm. Because his baseline instinct is quite different than the person that they had trained him to be. So as he's remembering things or whatever, all these things that he could do, uh, these these basically – these instincts that they've given him, whether it's languages or you know uh, fight moves or all this type of stuff – but there's something deeper and more human that has has arisen out of you know him being shot and almost dying and it's it's like it's reset his brain back to what we would consider to be more human mm-hmm. right and that psychology i think is is just really interesting because what has happened is is that and you can see it in the other agents that we he faces is that they have dehumanized them. And it's that humanity moment of, you know, when he's standing there with the gun to one Bosi's head, and his children are in the room. That humanity is the, that he finds again is the very thing that continues throughout the rest of the movie. Mm-hmm. So that, um, and, you know, obviously it, it's something to which I think is, um, a clear message of the movie of the inhumanity of, um, you know, this type of work and what the, the questions about, you know, what are we doing and why? And just as you were talking, that really struck me. And, And I think it stands out really interestingly in the film.
2: Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that too, because that scene did really stick out to me and shows exactly what you mean of, the dehumanizing of people to the point that they're just a shell with orders. You know, it's like the uh, Clone Wars, you know, good soldiers follow orders. Um, He was the soldier that realized what he was doing was wrong and pulled back. And so it's almost like proving that there are some people that can't necessarily be reprogrammed that his natural instinct was still to protect someone's children and to protect Mm -hmm. someone who had children there in the room with them um, and to resist that reprogramming. And now obviously there's times when he, his instincts do kick in or it's, you know, a killer be killed kind of moment later in the stairwell, but that at his core, he has these things that he will always believe are right and no matter what programming he went through resisted that and made sure that he was still doing what he thought was right
1: yeah that's a great point it's it's interesting too because you know we talked a little bit about this just with the way the film you know kind of changes the landscape of action movies but i I think the identity of this film uh is something that is is really well done when you think about the look and the feel of it, the production value of it. Um, the way it, it is very, you know, grounded and it's real, it's gritty. And part of that is that, you know, they're they're filming all over Europe in these real places. Um and I, I think, you know, they also set the look of the film with the action, but also the way it's shot with the kind of the, the, the start of the shaky cam that's gonna become um, you know, Dominant over all movies from now Mm. on Um, and but I was just really again I was watching this movie again it's been a while since I've seen it and I was taken aback by just how cohesive that look and feel is for the entire feeling of the movie um, and how well it works together to tell this story And just make you feel really invested because there's never a moment where I I felt like anything kind of pulls you out of it. Even, I mean, even the older technology and everything that they're using, like everything about the movie, it all feels so realistic that I buy everything that's happening in the movie. And again, I was just never pulled out because it's so consistent.
2: And that was the big piece that was so important to Lyman especially was making sure that everything felt authentic. I remember reading, he said you know, he wanted to make sure that the places that they filmed, like in Paris, looked like what you would see if you were a person really in Paris. He didn't want things to take people out of the scene because it didn't look correct or consistent with places they had been to. Um, And so it definitely even though these are places i've never personally been to felt very real and authentic to um you know like the tiny apartments um because of the way that cities were built and having mm-hmm. you know the quantity of yeah. people all crammed into one space together um and having places that were more rural like the her friend's house in the country with the snow and farm country and um just all the places that they visited felt consistent for the style that they were going for and that it was actual places in Europe that you could see and it. It didn't feel like it was a set or something. Um, I also loved that the feel here is specifically to challenge that idea that an action movie has to be big and larger than life and, Tons of explosions or, you know, vast scenery. It doesn't have to be that. It can be this smaller, focused, gritty feel um, where the audience is in the midst of the action rather than watching it from far away.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think those are all excellent points. And again, it's one of the places where, you know, you're kind of setting aside the James Bond style. Uh, and you're doing something that in many ways I think it you know the film closest to this that I can think of action wise and then the genre is like a license to kill you know from James Bond where very down to earth very gritty very raw um, and yet there is still some of those kind of silly parts in that film whereas this doesn't have any of that Um, and I think one of those things is is found in identifying the Treadstone um, and those characters that, that uh, play the people on the opposite side of uh, Jason Bourne. and And what's interesting here to me is that, you know, when you have like a Chris Cooper or Brian Cox, I think they're perfectly cast to be villainous. And yet I think one of the most interesting points of all of this is that they play perfectly with the gray that this film is portraying, I think the be, there there's such a fascinating amount of gray here because when you think about who Wambosi is as a deposed dictator um and you, you just know there's so much more to that story um mm-hmm. and the the ambiguity then you get with the CIA and its involvement in things i mean all of this to me is really really fascinating and those two actors together are just crazy awesome. I mean, Chris Cooper's fantastic, Brian Cox is amazing, and I think they both do a phenomenal job. And then you throw in like somebody like a Julia Stiles who you would not expect to be in this type of role. Right. But I think she does a great job and then of course continues on throughout the series uh in, as this character of Nikki and so like all in all I just think it's one of those things where I think by getting people that can play both sides um, and especially again, you have like a Julia styles uh, here, you, you're not casting straight up villains, but you're, you're casting people that I think can create some kind of nuance. Right. And mm-hmm. cause when you see like a, a especially a Julia styles on the, on the screen, y- you want to kind of be on her side, right? Because of the type of person she is, you know, um, And so I think that's one of the things that they do really well in this movie with, um, you know, the, the Treadstone
2: actors. I love that they chose actors here that can be so versatile. I think that it specifically, as you called it, Chris Cooper and Brian Cox really stand out and show through the writing and through their performance that not... People are not always for sure the good guys and the bad guys. That sometimes there are these areas of gray where it's like it, they're doing a job, and then at the end of the day, like Wambosi, he's home being a dad. You know, and it's it's showing that people are complex, and that you know you have to decide sometimes if it's to follow orders or if it's to be human and make a decision on the spot, depending on how you really feel is right and wrong. Um, And so I, I love that Brian Cox, especially as a character, he's able to portray this boss who seems very unassuming and is just hoping to wrap things up. And then you realize when Chris Cooper's character is killed, that he ordered that um, Mm -hmm. and he's actually in control (laughs) you know and also that people can surprise you (laughs) you know I don't Mm -hmm. think that um, Conklin ever thought that his boss had it out for him you know it was almost like he was just being informed of what was going on and hoping it was going to end up okay and you're like oh never mind he's not the victim here (laughs) Right.
1: Well, and I think that is one place, you know, uh, Lyman had admitted, you know, that they had jettisoned a lot of the content, of course, from the novels because it was uh, kind of stuck in the politics of the 80s. And he very much, you know, has his own political views. And I do think that they come out in this film, um, you know. It it's not hard to see how he feels about uh, U.S. foreign policy, mm-hmm. and um, and so and and yet he said he didn't want to try and you know cr- kind of cram his feelings down the throats of others, um, and uh, but I do I, I think that one of the interesting things about the movie is that when you begin to think about what's actually happening in the film, um, and the, the people involved in it, you know, nobody is, um, there's not a lot of moral high ground, you know, um, Mm -hmm. again, uh, and if there's any, maybe one failing of the film, I I think that it would have been interesting to know exactly what Wambozi had done as the Nigerian dictator and what that had got him exiled. Um, but you get the feeling like obviously it's it's just not good mm-hmm. right um and obviously too we we know that the CIA has had involvement in that happening but also their other involvement in in africa and so there there's a there's if there's i guess maybe any criticism i have of the film is that i do feel that um there probably could have just been you know, maybe a couple of lines here or there that could have added a little bit more shading to that. uh, So we had a a better understanding, but I, it's another place where I think the film, it doesn't, you know, create easy answers for us um, for the most part. And I I think that's one of also the ways in which, you know, this movie um, allows action movies in some ways to evolve from just being about heroes and villains to sometimes making things uh, just a little bit more complicated.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think we're both saying the same thing of that. There's a lot left open to interpretation, I think intentionally Mm -hmm. with this movie. Um, But I do agree. I think that there could have been a little bit more explanation about what Wombosi did that would, have earned him exile and execution. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. and then two, you know, maybe a little bit more about if there were other things Treadstone was trying to accomplish, because it seemed like that also was just a piece in a bigger plot. Right. Exactly. That was then completely yeah. scrapped. So, um, by the characters, I mean, not the, the writing of the movie. Sure.
1: Sure. It also, of course, you know, that seems like the thing that they end up, you know, picking up with the sequels as right. well as, you know, digging into Treadstone, but also with all of those type of ideas, 100 percent. So um, I did want to ask you, too, because uh, the the musical identity of this movie, I think, is, is in its score from John Powell is really interesting because I also believe it to be a place where, um, you know, because of the limitations, they actually uh, – got Powell, uh, you know, at the end of the the creation of the film. He didn't have a lot of time to put all this together. But I think that a lot of what he ends up doing here, where you kind of have this rhythmic driving score, is another place where this movie ends up creating a template that you're going to see a lot of other action movies follow in the future.
2: Oh, 100%. I think that here it fits so well with this kind of in-your-face action, hand-to-hand combat, um, brutal sometimes, um, action that you needed something that was going to be unique and groundbreaking with the music. And, you know, I will say for me with all the Bourne movies, the thing that sticks in my mind above all is that end credit song. You know, it's actually, um, a song called Extreme Ways by Moby. Um, and it's just the intro of it that's so memorable and that now I tie directly to the Bourne movies only. I can't hear that song without thinking, oh, Jason Bourne's on. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Um, and I'm not going to sing it because it would not do it justice. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, I I couldn't agree with you more because I think that there's just... A, The the score, uh, it it creates this paranoia when it needs to, which is really important, I think, for uh, the Mm -hmm. movie, Um, you know, and it does such a good job there. And I think, again, a lot of movies end up picking this up. And uh, I think that's awesome Um, because it, it really fits the the feeling that they want you to have you know i i think it is another place where the score i think really fits in with the the uh, milieu that this film is trying to create um, that they're trying to have you feel completely immersed in and i think they just do a really good job with that and so it's it's another place where i think they you know are just firing on all cylinders mm-hmm. well you know, it's it's really interesting to, to always get back into these older movies and kind of see how especially, you know, they hold up. But I, I can't wait because I feel like we haven't really had a lot of bad things to say about this. So what would you rate The Born Identity?
2: Well, I don't think I've hidden it very well, so I'm just going to come out with it. I give this a four and a half out of five pen weapons. Because it just still is so impressive. um, And it doesn't need a ton of dressing up to do that. That's what I think is so awesome about this movie and then leads you into wanting to see all of the subsequent ones because it starts with the basics and does them well. And then combines it with this interesting music that kind of gives that paranoia like you said and a little discomfort because it's a uh, um, dissonant notes um, I think it's so interesting and in the way that it focuses in on the key basic pieces and um, the fighting and then also having the um, filming you know the cinematography the way that it's done it all works and It just makes me want more. So it was awesome to get to go back and watch it again. And I still give it a four and a half out of five. What about you?
1: I am right there with you. I'm four and a half out of five. And in all honesty, this is uh, because, you know, it's, um, it did everything you said, you know, we had a couple of little things here and there. and, And there's, there's probably some stuff maybe if I thought about it a little bit more, I could say, oh, I might want to see this, you know, do a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. But, in all honesty, this is a great movie, an absolutely great film. Uh, and it, it's one of those things where, you know, sometimes you don't remember how good a movie is until you rewatch it. And then you're like, wow, this was awesome, you know, and I very much enjoyed rewatching this and I found myself completely immersed back in the story, back in the world, pulled in with all of the action. And to be able to do that, you know, after all of these years is a hallmark of a great film. Mm -hmm. You know, and so I'm so glad we went back and rewatched this. And so maybe we'll, you know, catch up with the other two sequels sometime down the road. But uh, Christy, you know, if there's anything people wanted to catch up with you about, where would they find you?
2: Well, you can find me on Letterboxd, Instagram and Twitter or X at Bespin Bell. And if you want to listen to a finished show I had with my friends, Amanda and Teresa called Sabers and Spells, you can do that as well on the Skywalking Through Neverland Network. And what about you?
1: Well, you can find me all over social media under the name Matt Rushing 2 uh, You can also find me, of course, here on the network outside the 602 Club with The Orb, Warp 5, Literary Treks, Artificial Tango, and a Saddle Up. You'll also find me over on the Nerd Party Network with two shows. One's called Owl Post, talking about every single chapter of the Harry Potter series one chapter at a time, and then Aggressive Negotiations with John Mills as we talk about Star Wars each and every week. But thank you so much for
2: joining us. And y'all come back now, you hear...